My name's Lucinda Duggar, and my husband, Michael, and I have been attending York Alliance for four and a half years. We just recently entered our second decade of parenthood. Our daughter, Estella, turned 11 about a month ago, and so we're very excited about that. We have three other children who are aged nine, seven, and five, so we have a long way to go as parents, but we are excited for the journey that God has put us, put us on so far. Um, I really want to thank Pastor Brian and the elders and the other staff of the church who are working alongside of those of us in this preaching cohort and giving us an opportunity to share God's word with you guys. A couple of years ago, some friends and I took our children down to an art museum, and as we were walking through the art museum, we came across a painting that was similar to this one. Not this exact painting, but this is a painting by Monet of the city streets of Paris in the late 1800s. Our, my friends and I were looking at this painting and we were looking at the composition, the colors, we were talking about what was going on and how Monet kind of brought colors through and, and just um, being very excited about the way that this painting was painted. And then suddenly one of my friends said, I wonder what the streets of Paris smelled like during this time. You don't get that in this painting. And I was struck by that comment. As a student of art history, I have studied this time period probably more than any other time period. And many great artists that we still considered as greats today, Renoir, Monet, Degas, and even Pennsylvania's own Mary Cassatt, have come out of this time period. But even though I understand the cultural implications through creativity and the intellect that was going on during this time, I had never actually thought about what was the rest of life like for Paris? What did the streets smell like? There's the old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words. But now I wonder, what are the thousand words that the picture is not saying? What do the streets of Paris smell like? Oftentimes when we consider the, old, or the New Testament, I think we, see, we think in our minds pictures like this of the coming Messiah, silent nights, holy nights, this stillness um, going on in society at the time. But though paintings like these are beautiful, they're actually the opposite of what was happening during the first century. When you think about the smell alone, Many Jews lived in one-room houses, and if they had cattle, the cattle often lived in the house with them, and the Jews would sleep upstairs on a loft of sorts, and so they often just smelled their animals. We, we read in the New Testament about um, uh, leprosy and just um, various things going on, the sacrifices, and I think just the streets must have just smelled of blood and animal dung and rotting flesh. The social constructs during the time were much different than they are today. Women were expected only to keep home, to go to the well to get water, to cook and take care of their families. Young girls were expected to get married at a very young age and have a lot of babies. And the number of babies they had often um, pointed to how important they were in society. Men participated in the trades or they would spend many long hours in the field toiling the ground with primitive tools. Young boys were expected to do what their father did, to learn their father's trade. If your father was a blacksmith and you wanted to be a carpenter, there wasn't much room for movement. 
Not only that, but half of the area's population was Jewish at this time. The remainder was Greek, Roman, Syrian, Egyptian, Arab, and Persian. And so you had this melting pot of sorts of both Jewish tradition and culture and pagan culture and religions all in one place. The Romans were the rule of the land. They were the most recent in a long line of foreign rulers. Garrisons and borders surrounded the area. Soldiers standing around were a constant reminder of the oppression that was going on. By law, a Roman soldier could force anyone to carry his equipment for up to one mile. Most Jews despised their foreign overlords, but there was this disagreement on how to oppose it. In the hills of Galilee, a band of Jewish patriots saw armed rebellion while others waited patiently for a deliverer. And then in the outlying regions, kind of outside Jerusalem, there were some Jews that actually benefited from the Roman rule, the trade routes and some of the safety that they had now. And so they didn't despise it so much. They actually kind of welcomed the Roman ruler. However, the mere presence of Romans could often cause a revolt among the people. In addition, To the Jews, their religion represented more than just a form of worship. It gave them their unique identity as people. They worshiped one God, whereas many of the other cultures and people worshiped many gods. But this rule was more than a way of life, and deep-seated resentment toward the way of life and culture of of the pagans Um, was, was instilled among the Jews, especially among the peasants. They became extremely intolerant of how other people acted and what other people did. And then within the Jewish culture, you had the Pharisees who were respected Jewish leaders and held to the letter of the law, and they refused to take an oath of allegiance to the Romans. So many of the peasants actually looked up to the Pharisees and respected them. And then you had the Sadducees, who were a conservative political group and who controlled the high Jewish council, but they had little influence on the common people. It is in this context of unrest, of insecurity, of perhaps fear, that Jesus is conducting his ministry, and he presents to us and to the people the radical concept of loving your enemies. He recognizes the ease at which people can hate those around them, but he says that they must love those people. He tells the people that they must live counter to the culture that surrounds them. They cannot merely fall back on being shaped by the culture in which they live, but they must intentionally live in contrast to those around them. They need to choose love over hate. As followers of Christ today, we must also choose love over hate. It is not enough for believers to follow the cultural current of being kind to and loving those who are kind to us. We are commanded to show the same kindness and love to those whom we struggle to love with our enemies. My daughter, Stella Duggar, is going to come up here and read our scripture to us this morning. We are turning to the scripture of Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. If you would like to turn there and read along with us. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn him to the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Thank you so much, Estella. I appreciate it. Before we turn to our message this morning, let us turn to God in prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for being with us here today and that we can just take this time to worship you and meet you in a new way. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the wisdom that is in your word, and I pray that we will um, gain an understanding of who you are and what you want to teach us today. Any words that I might have, Lord, that are not from you, um, may they uh, be forgotten. But I pray that the words that you want us to hear will be deeply embedded in our hearts and our minds um, and that we will just grow and be transformed to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus wasn't just a good person who came to provide a new philosophy to the people on how they could be better people. He wasn't asking them to do more or to try to work out a better life by putting into practice what he was saying. No, he was pre presenting a radical transformation of the heart, thought, and action to the people. As we look at this text today, we'll look at three areas. We'll see how Jesus came to challenge cultural assumptions, how Jesus came to demonstrate radical love, and how Jesus came to transform individuals. Our first point, Jesus came to challenge cultural assumptions. In a world with so much adversity, it is easy to hate. It's easy to pick apart someone or something with the slightest nuance of word, action, or deed. Our ability to impact others with what we say or do has become far-reaching with the constant movement of technology, the ease of travel, and our engagement in everyday lives. With a click of a button or a firing off of words with our thumbs in the heat of a moment, we're able to transform our worlds and the worlds of others in a way that can either affect them positively or negatively. Anyone or anything can become our enemy in a matter of moments. It's easy to act on those gut reactions and to allow our pride to swell up in us, to turn what could have been a mere understanding into a full-fledged battle of the wills. This battle of wills sets ourselves up against other people. Sometimes it's intentional, but oftentimes it's unintentional. We begin to define ourselves by these interactions and we make definite distinctions of who we are based on interactions with others. 
Well, these interactions are useful in unpacking our own identity when they are laden with certain assumptions about people or about what is being said, then that can lead to our downfall. As we are shaped and molded by the culture around us, we have a tendency to break down our understanding of society and people into various groups. Most notably, we have this us and them mentality. People that are like me, that are similar, that are in my social circles are part of the us group, while everyone else is in the them group. Sociologists talk about the them group as the other, the term the other. The other is an individual who is perceived by the group as not belonging, as being different in some fundamental way. Any stranger can become the other. The group, the us group, sees itself as the norm and judges those who are different in any way as the other. The other is often perceived as lacking essential characteristics that are possessed by the group and then in turn is seen as lesser or inferior and then is treated accordingly. So this can happen in many ways. Um, it can take different forms such as race, nationality, religion, social classes, political ideologies, and then also even origins, so somebody who might be a native-born versus an immigrant. Understanding the differences between people and people groups is not inherently bad, but our natural tendency as humans is to incorporate ideals of power and influence into this understanding, and then that's when the tension arises. And we often view those that are different than us as the other, and a misunderstanding arises, we start to pin that person as the other and as the enemy. And then we easily dismiss them and we justify our actions, our negative actions, because we see them so different as the other. So when I was in high school, I lived in the Czech Republic for a year. I was an exchange student there, and this was shortly after the fall of communism. And I lived in a small village of about 10,000 people and um, as I would meet people, they would say to me, you know, I hate all Americans, but I like you. <laughs> so, okay, and then somebody else said that to me. And after a while, I thought, well, this is rather quite odd. So I started asking people when they would say that, well, have you ever met an American before? Well, no, I haven't. So as it turns out, I was the first American that had been in that village since the fall of communism. And the people's first real connection with somebody from outside of their social construct. So whatever had been fed to them while they lived under communism, through propaganda, through media, through books, whatever was told to them was building up this world, this picture that all Americans were bad. And yet when they met me for the first time, they realized, huh, not all Americans are what we were told Americans were. I think like a painting, we have created a picture of what other people are like, and we have a tendency to stay within the confounds of that painting without seeking to ever dig deeper about what it might be like for the other person. The issues that the first century Jews dealt with, the cursing of the enemy, the social and political tensions are similar to the same context in, what, in which we function today. Things have not changed that much, really. We easily love our friends or family who do good to us. Yet this is exactly the opposite of how Jesus said we should live. 
Jesus came to challenge our thoughts and hearts about other people and how we treat them. So when we consider this idea of our enemy, I feel like the question is really twofold. The first question is, who do you hate? Who gets under your skin? Who do you consider to be so different in person than, or ideology or character than you that you despise that person or those people? Where do you get that ping every time in your heart you think of those people? So that's question one, who do you hate? The second question is who hates you? Is it your coworker, a friend, a relative? Who makes you feel uncomfortable every time you see that person because you know they hate you? I think we've probably all been on both sides of the coin. We have all hated and we have all been hated. When someone wrongs us, this indignation wells up inside of us and we think, I can't believe this. How could that have person done that? And we often go out of our way to avoid that person or those people. This thing that is going on inside our hearts and minds when we feel wronged creates a fracture in our relationship with the person. And if it's not properly dealt with over time, that fracture can become a deep chasm that further separates us from the person or those people. So I want to start by looking at our actions and address the question of who do you hate? When I was thinking about this um, command of loving our enemy, it made me think first of loving our neighbor. We hear often in the Bible that Jesus tells us to love our neighbor. And so I started thinking, well, who is my neighbor? And I feel like if we can understand who is my neighbor a little better, then we can understand the question of who is my enemy a little bit better? Who is my neighbor and how do I treat him when he is in need? We're going to turn to a different passage first, Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. And this is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I'm sure many of you know quite well, but I'm going to read through it anyway. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? The expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the man, the expert of the law, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. And then Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? 
The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So when Jesus was telling this parable, most likely everybody in the crowd was Jewish. And they were expecting the hero of the story to be Jewish. And yet we see that the priest and Levite who were Jewish ignored the man on the road, whereas the Samaritan, who was most likely a foreigner and he was far from home, ended up being the model character of the story. And we have to understand here that the Samaritans were not simply outcasts. They were the despised enemies of the Jews. The hearers of this parable were coming to it with cultural assumptions of how different people should be treated. People who are like me, who are in the us group, are treated one way, while people who are the other are treated another way. Jesus never came to reinforce what we already think to be true. He didn't come to pat us on the back and tell us we're doing a good job. No, everything he said and did challenges us to rethink how we approach ourselves, society, and ultimately our relationship with God. Since a Samaritan, the despised enemy of the Jews, is the parable's model character, the legal expert that's talking with Jesus must learn about genuine love from the example of a person who, would, who he would regard as his enemy. Jesus reframed the question that prompted the parable in the first place. Instead of identifying who counts as a neighbor to be loved, Jesus indicates that a person truly acts as a neighbor through loving. The legal expert wanted to know who deserves his love, but Jesus replies by showing how authentic love will seek out, even in the unlikeliest of places, neighbors to receive compassion and care. This is a story of an action that is toward another, one who might actually be an enemy. In verse 37 in the same passage, you see, um, so Jesus says in verse 36, who do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the, half of, the hands of robbers? And the expert says, the one who had mercy on him. Mercy. Mercy begins by opening oneself to whom one might strongly disagree. Mercy begins with such small acts of understanding, but it can lead to life-changing experiences of love. Compassion, understanding, leads you to have mercy, and mercy is like forgiveness. If you have mercy on someone, you let them off the hook. You, you show kindness to them somehow. The good Samaritan here was essentially showing that the man who was robbed and beaten, that it didn't matter that they were enemies. His act of kindness and compassion was a statement of forgiveness for any wrongdoings that might have occurred between Jews and Samaritans. In this passage, Jesus is also pointing to the kingdom of God. He tells his audience that the kingdom of God will turn human values and judgments upside down. People must do away with their preconceived ideas about who God is and or about who is a good person and who is not a good person, who's doing right and who's doing wrong. Here, Jesus is saying that though you consider this person your enemy, though you would normally just walk right past him when he is in need, 
though your culture is defined in this way, just forget about it. Next, I want to look at our reactions and consider the question of who hates you. And we'll turn back to our passage, Luke 6, and start in verse 27. Jesus says, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. What we see here in these first few verses is that Jesus is giving a list of examples of how to react in certain situations when you're confronted by somebody who hates you. These words would have also been shocking to first century Jews. It would have been extremely hard for them to digest this since they would have not wanted to bless someone who cursed them. If someone acted harshly toward them initially, they would have wanted to turn around and be nasty to that person, Mac. They so separated themselves from others that they held a disdain for anyone who was different from them. They held a deep-seated resentment for other cultures and for those who were different. Do you do this? Is this your heart? I want to look at what Jesus says about these actions at the very end of this section. In verse 36, Jesus says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Here again we have mercy. Just as in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus said that the one who loved his neighbor is the one whose action was of mercy toward his enemy. Here he says that the one whose reaction to their enemy is merciful and is doing what the Father does. The Father is someone, um, the Father God is someone who most everyone in this crowd would have acknowledged as the one they worshiped. And so Jesus is orienting our reactions toward others within the kingdom of God. He is telling them that their actions of mercy and compassion toward those who persecute them are ultimately what followers of God should be doing. The Jews were looking for uh, the kingdom of God on earth, and Jesus is demonstrating that. Show mercy. That's what your father does. Before we move into our next section, I just want to stop and mention a couple practical examples of how we living in York County can begin to um, bridge some of these gaps. If we consider ourselves as the us and then there's this concept of the other and we just don't understand and you're sitting here saying Lucinda like my world is so small I'm going to work I'm raising my kids I'm keeping my house and like I just don't have time to um, reach out to other people and understand different races or ideologies or political constructs um, and so I just want to give a couple practical tips um, that we can think about doing the first thing is I think we need to get off of media and not um, base our cultural understanding of different people and people groups based on what we see on TV and movies and quite possibly even in the news. Um, there's just so much adversity even in those places and that's one particular way um, that whoever's creating the, 
the movie is representing somebody. I think the best way that we can do it is to meet people one-on-one -on -one and engage with people in conversations. And so um, you can go to an ethnic grocery store. We have a number of ethnic grocery stores in York County. Um, Asian grocery stores, Hispanic grocery stores, and even just look on the shelves and see what food is there. How is their food in this culture different than the food that I'm consuming? So many cultures are defined by the food that they eat. And then while you're in that grocery store, take a moment and try to meet somebody who's in the aisle, who's shopping there also, or talk to one of the grocery store workers. And even if the conversation kind of goes nowhere, it's still just a way to kind of begin to develop an understanding of somebody who might be different than you. Um, similarly, we can go to restaurants. If we have a tendency to go to just um, one type of restaurant, maybe we could go to a different kind of restaurant that's different. Try a different type of ethnic food. In many of the ethnic restaurants around here, um, people are working there that are from the countries of the, uh, the food that's being served. If you're a mom or a dad and you have children, take your children to a playground that's not in your neighborhood. Maybe on the other side of the city, there's a playground just a stone's throw from church here that is often full of people that are of a different racial makeup of the majority of this church and a different socioeconomic class. When you're on that playground, stop and try to talk to a mom or a dad just to begin to understand who they are, how do they think, um, how can we start to build these bridges across communities. And finally, Take a Sunday, and I hope, Brian, that you're okay with this. Take a Sunday and go to a church where you're a minority. Um, that's quite the experience. There are Spanish-speaking churches here. There's a Vietnamese Alliance Church up the road. Um, sit in a service where you don't understand anything that's going on and just feel the love of God and try to talk to some people. Um, our own church plant, the Mosaic City Church, is a great place to even start where you might even know some of the people there because many of the people came from our congregation. And it's just a way to start to understand people that are different than who I am and, than, and who you are. I want to move on to our second point on how Jesus came to demonstrate radical love. In verses 32 through 35, it says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, in quotations there, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend back to them without expecting to get anything back. These verses say that we should love without any repayment. All people will consider their actions and reactions worthy when there is some level of reciprocity involved. It's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to lend to those that you are expecting to get something back from. But Jesus says that in my kingdom, love is a higher calling. The thing is, is Jesus came for all people and his love shows no boundaries. He consistently demonstrated his radical love for people through mercy. And many of these people were, would have been considered enemies. We have the woman in the well in the book of John. She was a Samaritan woman. 
Now the Jews at this time, they despised the Samaritans so much that they would have gone out of their way when traveling just so not to walk in an area where Samaritans live. Yet what did Jesus do? He went right into the center of a Samaritan village and he talked to a woman, which wasn't common then either. We see that Jesus Jesus healed the sick and the possessed. We know of the story of the demon-possessed man named Legion, and Jesus cast the the demons out of him into the swine that jumped off the cliff. And this, this happened most likely in a Gentile city. And then there's also the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. If you were bleeding back then, you were considered unclean and you should have not been out in public. And yet she came out in public to be healed by Jesus. And Jesus not only healed her, but he recognized her as a human being in her brokenness. He ate with tax collectors. His disciples themselves came from varying backgrounds and social classes. And when I think about who they were, I think they were probably enemies too. Even on the cross, we see that Jesus pardoned those who persecuted and killed him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. In our minds, I think sometimes we say, you know, that's Jesus. That's what he did. He can do that sort of stuff because he's God and he's perfect. But you know, that's what we're called to be like. Because of the sin in our hearts, we are often dismissive of what God is calling us to do. We can say either, I'm not going to do that because, you know, I don't want to love. It's too hard. I want to hate. That person is different than I am. There's no room for reconciliation. Or we can say, what God is asking me to do is too great. I just can't do that. We are either taking a self-righteous perspective and therefore being disobedient, or we are taking a self-defeated perspective, not trusting God, and also being disobedient. It doesn't matter, guys, how we justify our sin. It's still there. And Jesus is saying that not only did he come to redeem the darkest places in our hearts, he is asking us to reconsider it in light of how we treat people. The sinful nature in our hearts is naturally inclined to respond positively to those that are positive to us. We love those that love us. We lend to those that will return what we have lended. But Jesus tells us to throw that understanding out the window. He says that our picture, our painting of love, of how we have constructed it to look, should, uh, is not how we should continue to move forward. Jesus presents a new picture of love, one that knows no bounds, that offers self-sacrifice and freely gives without an expectation for return. In verses 32 through 34, we see that the word sinners is in quotation. Even sinners love those who love them. Um, Even sinners do that. I imagine Jesus is using a little inflection in his voice here, maybe even some sarcasm. I think he knows that people in the crowd are not thinking of themselves. They don't think of themselves as sinners in the same way that other people are sinners. They might not be thinking that their sin is so great, but that person's is. That person's sin is great. They might be thinking of somebody else's sinful heart, not their own. Their own self-righteousness is creeping into their understanding of what Jesus is saying. They are not like them. They are not sinners. 
They are righteous, or so they think. You see, through our worldly eyes, we look at a passage like this, and we think of the, we think of the physical makeup of the crowd. There were disciples, there were Jews, there were some Pharisees, there were probably some Gentiles in this group. But I don't think that this is how Jesus is looking at the crowd. He was looking at their hearts. He could look across the crowd and see that not everyone's heart was aligned to the Father's. He knows that they see a distinction between themselves and others, that they are not considering their own sinful nature as they listen. But the fact is, when we consider the purity of Jesus' love, that it is without blemish, we are immediately humbled to realize that we do not measure up. It is impossible for us to execute the command of loving our enemies that Jesus lays out here unless we first enter into a relationship with him. It's by pursuing his heart that our hearts begin to be transformed. And then this dance begins to happen that is an expression of his love, not our love. It is a combination of both discipline and desire that brings out these characteristics that are both countercultural and radical. And when as a follower of Jesus Christ, you say or do something that is in line with the spirit of Jesus, people should stop and be shocked and think or reassess. But then they also feel the freedom and love that is being exhibited because of Christ. When we look at the second part of verse 35 in this passage, Jesus says, so in the beginning of that passage, the verse 35, he says, but love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then this part says, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So what is Jesus saying here? What's he talking about? So remember, he's addressing a large crowd of people, mostly Jews. Is he saying that the enemies are ungrateful and wicked and that's why the reward is great? I don't think so. I think he's talking to the Jews here to remind them of their unrighteousness, to remind them that God is kind to them even when they are ungrateful. For generations, God took care of the Jews. They were enslaved in Egypt. He brought them out of slavery. He carried them through the desert and delivered them to the promised land. Even though they were ungrateful and they grumbled, he took care of them. He constantly called them the wicked generation, yet he still provided. His love for them was abundant. He is forcing them to look at their own hearts and to recognize that they are not more righteous than others because they are his chosen people. All people are equal in God's eyes, the righteous and the unrighteous, the sinner and the saint. Why? Because his character is greater than all of this. When we orient ourselves and our hearts under the feet of Jesus, under his character, under who he is, then our perspective and our actions and our words are a natural outflow of who he is and our life in him. The reward that Jesus talks about in verse 35 is the blessing of being with Jesus. It's not a material reward. 
It's the abundance of walking intimately with someone who is greater than I and being in communion with him. My third point is that Jesus came to transform individuals. And for this point, I want us to jump back up to the very beginning of the text. In verse 27, the first phrase is, but I tell you who hear me. Jesus knows that not everyone in the crowd is listening. They're either not paying attention or they just quite frankly don't even care what he's saying. But even if they are listening, I don't think Jesus' words were passive or uninstructive, like, hey guys, if you hear me, you know, listen up. You know, I think all of Jesus' words are intentional. He didn't just say things to fill space and time. He knew his time was limited, and so his words had urgency. When we call a friend or a spouse or, or somebody, we expect a response. Hey, so-and-so, come on, can you hear me? And when there's no response, we keep calling and calling and calling. And there's an urgency, more of an urgency in our voice until that person responds. We see this in the Old Testament when, Samuel was call, or when God was calling Samuel and he kept calling and calling until Samuel responded. Jesus is expecting that if we hear him, then our actions and our words will reflect what he is asking us to do. We will not continue in our own ways, expecting reciprocity for what we do for others. We will be transformed by who he is and love without boundaries. When Jesus is calling, commanding, or telling, we need to recognize that there is an urgency in his voice because there needs to be an urgency in our own lives. Just like Jesus, our time on earth is also limited. By looking into God's face, his holiness and his perfection, our lives become oriented toward listening to him and acting on his call. If you are not listening, you will not follow his commands. Yet as believers, we are commanded to regard no one from a worldly point of view. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 16 is very clear on this matter. It says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 16 says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Our orientation toward others comes as an outflow of our orientation toward Christ. If we are truly convinced, and I hope that we all are, if we are truly convinced that Christ died for all, then we should no longer live for ourselves. Then we will not view others with a worldly point of view, but as Christ views them. The thing about Jesus is that he does not expect us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps like the good old American, if I work harder, then this is going to happen and I'm going I'm to be able to do these things. No, he asks us to enter into a relationship with him and be transformed by who he is and then follow his commands. 
If we are trying to love our enemies in our own power, then we will inevitably have bitterness in our hearts. And then the funny thing is, is we're still not doing what Jesus commanded. Even if on the outset it looks like we are, but our hearts are still not oriented toward him. And then we're like the whitewashed tombs that he mentions. But when we are truly transformed by who Jesus is, and we don't just take his words on the surface, we become a sweet aroma to those around us. We leave little droplets of truth, goodness, and beauty in the places we are and with the people we interact. When we have been transformed by Christ and we are acting out of that transformation, then those around us begin to be transformed because they see that something is different and they long to be filled by that something too. This is ultimately the command that Jesus leaves us with. I have made you a new creation. I have transformed you. So go, transform the world around you. Pass on the blessings I have given you. Show compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and love.